Hello and welcome to another episode of Soccer Roundtable. We had a little bit of a break last week as our podcast equipment was unavailable to us. So, you know, we did have the Periscope live and that was fun, entertaining and all, but it's not quite a podcast. We are back this week. We're ready to talk a lot of soccer. We have some great interviews. We interviewed Matthew Doyle of MLSsoccer.com. Don't want you to get that um, mixed up with MLS.com. Listening to a real estate website. We'll have that later on the podcast along with interview with Ryan Kelly, the president of Asheville City SC, a uh, up-and-coming team in the uh, soccer landscape and a team that's really thrived in the NPSL and has a great growing fan base and supporters group. So make sure you catch those interviews in the podcast. But in the meantime, we'll talk a lot of MLS. We'll talk some USL, a little bit of NASL as they're going through a um, big-time news where they're uh, suing the USSF, and we'll get into that. We'll also get into how a soccer roundtable, me specifically, took my first trip to Mercedes-Benz Stadium. I went to Atlanta United game, talk about the atmosphere, the crowd, the stadium, uh, the game itself and how that went and my thoughts on it and my experience. So we'll dive into that and we'll, how about we start off with that. So I got there a good solid three and a half hours early to get the full experience and went to the Gulch, which is where the supporters groups, uh, Footy Mob, Terminus Legion, the Faction, or Insurgents tailgate. They tailgate in the Gulch. Um, opposed to next to the varsity when they played at Bobby Dot. The thing I liked about the varsity, though, was you knew everyone in Atlanta knows that name, and they know where the varsity is with the Gulch. Not as many people are familiar with that. Uh, parking was 30 bucks, which is semi-reasonable, I guess. Uh, it's better than L.A., where you're going to have $100 parking for um, LAFC games. But it was, uh, it was interesting. They had a radio show, soccer down here, doing a live uh, broadcast in the back. And then they had food tents and drink tents set up. Um, Brittany Arnold, the sideline reporter, was there uh, interviewing fans. It, it was a cool atmosphere. Uh, I, I watched them march to the stadium. That is one of the most hyped crowns I've seen. The only crown that I think even compares in the marching aspect is Orlando City. Orlando City has a phenomenal march up into their stadium with their smoke grenades and um, that, but Atlanta has some phenomenal chants. They've created themselves. Um, they've really, on the chant side, and we're talking from the fan aspect, they took the Viking clap that Seattle kind of um, stole from Europe, and they really tweaked it and made it their own, and then um, some other European clubs had it, and some national teams in Europe uh, really used that and made it a unique thing they have. And Atlanta took it, and they put their own spin on it, where it's a slow Viking clapping, you know, steadily increases, but everyone's ATL. They have lots of chants that have ATL in them. They have some, also some original chants. I think their they're most original, their most popular is one that's called We Are The A. And uh, talks about the Kings of the South. I mean, just some cool atmosphere that you think a first-time cl um, club and a first-time supporters group isn't great. This snake created this right off the bat. They have a phenomenal atmosphere from game one. Uh, the, the supporters were chanting 90 minutes. The thing that Atlanta really prides himself on is they do stand 90 minutes. And at, there was, I think, 45,000 people at the match I was at. They had the curtains down blocking up the top section. I was in section 122, which is the lower bowl on the uh, left-hand corner, the opposite side of the supporter group. That's where I was stationed for the match. And I think the, there's the two corners on the opposite side of the supporters' ends. There's a few people not standing. Besides that, everyone else in the stadium was standing. I heard that for the 70,000 game match, not everyone... There are some people in the top top section, a lot of them actually, that were not standing. But Atlanta does stand the entire match, which separates them from a lot of different MLS clubs. I think Portland was the only other team that really does that. And that was really cool to see. The The atmosphere was absolutely phenomenal. And again, I cannot pride them on that. I will say from, let's go to the pitch now and talk about the game itself. They were out Brandon Vasquez, who got a red card in the previous match. He comes off the bench. 
pretty frequently. He's one of their top forwards. He can play on the wing. He can play striker. He's a really young guy. He's really prospered in the Atlanta United system. Um, you know, that was a very, very terrible 20 minutes. Even a terrible 30 minutes from Atlanta United. He played very sloppy. A lot of turnovers. Those first 20 minutes, 30 minutes, when they had the ball in the box, it was absolutely ugly. They could not convert whatsoever. They were very timid to shoot. Uh, they held the ball outside the box a lot and didn't know what to do with it. Great turnovers. Montreal countered a few times early in the match. And they didn't get any shots off early, but they had lots of opportunities they just missed on. And uh, they couldn't capitalize on Atlanta's mistakes at all. Uh, Atlanta and I just threw the ball around. They really didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have a solid... They had possession. They just didn't have solid possession. And they couldn't work with much off of it. Uh, they settled down a little bit. Uh, Joseph Martinez really opened up the game. And they had opportunities for other guys to get a goal. Tito Vigalba opened up the scoring with an absolute golazo as he um, punched the ball from the top of the box into the top right-hand corner where no one in the right mind could get to that ball. And it, it was kind of similar to the one he scored against Orlando in the match in Orlando City. And then uh, Jeff Lorenovitz scored his first goal this year in MLS. And that was cool to see. It was a really ugly goal, actually. I think Julian Gressel, he came in from Guadalmaron. He's out for three weeks. Uh, Julian Gressel had a free kick, and Lorenovitz just bounced off his chest into the uh, back of the net. But let's talk some other MLS. And that is Toronto FC. They could not pick up a win against Montreal Wednesday. And um, they they tried to rest everyone, and they ended up losing 5-3. Um, they did make a comeback late in the match. But with the, they, they're sliding. They slid the last two matches. They couldn't pick up wins. And Atlanta has absolutely capitalized on every opportunity in the world. Atlanta is sitting at 49 points. With 29 games played, where Toronto is 62 points and 31 games played. Atlanta is third place. They have the least amount of games played tied with New York Red Bulls and the Eastern Conference. The only team above them besides Toronto is NYCFC, and they have 52 points at 30 games played. If Atlanta wins the, wins the last of their games this season, and Toronto loses all of them, they can have one draw, but that's it then Atlanta could win the Supporter Shield, which would be absolutely huge. That would probably be the biggest letdown since the Atlanta Falcons 28-3 loss, and I mean, with 28-3 leading the Super Bowl that they blew this past year. Toronto has had a ginormous lead in the Supporter Shield this entire season, and it's they've looked like the best team in MLS history. If Atlanta can complete the sweep and come back and take the Supporter Shield from Toronto, that'll be... Um, That'll be absolutely crazy. That'll be the story of MLS, and people will be talking about that nonstop. We actually have an article coming out later tonight uh, about that, and about is Toronto FC the greatest team in MLS history, and if they do lose the supporter shield, are they still the greatest team in MLS history? So make sure you check that out on SoccerRoundtable.net, and while you're at it, make sure you're following us on Twitter at SOCCRoundtable. Now let's dive into the interview with Matthew Doyle from MLSsoccer.com. I hope you enjoy it. When we come back from the break, we'll talk some more soccer. Running away and could be the best team in MLS history if they win the Supporter Shield and probably the MLS Cup as well. But who do you think in the East, when it comes playoff time, is the number one contender or the you know the thorn in the side of TFC? Who can be that team that they want to avoid when it comes to playoff time? I, I think if they're healthy. Uh, NYCFC and Atlanta are, are the, the two teams that I see as being kind of in Toronto FC's tier, just in terms of their ability to uh, kind of take a, a game by the scruff of the neck and, and utterly control it and dominate teams and then win by either pitching a shutout or, or just exploding offensively. Uh, but the difference between TFC and those teams is, you know, TFC goes to – LA without their best player, and that was Sebastian Javinko, maybe the league's best player, and, and tosses up a 4-0 win. Uh, they did it. They made it look easy. Um, Atlanta without Joseph Martinez isn't a particularly good team. Uh, NYCFC without David Villa isn't a particularly good team. So uh, TFC have, have been built really for the regular season, for the grind, um, because they have so much depth. They can answer so many questions. Uh, 
the playoffs are a different story. And so, like, yeah, going back to the top, if if anybody's going to do it, it would be a full-strength NYCFC or a full-strength Atlanta. And that's a good point you made. Um, I know really, even earlier in the season, uh, TFC was out. Uh, Michael Bradley and Josie Altsworth for two matches, and they won both of those pretty handily. I think Atlanta's problem is not necessarily missing Joseph Martinez, but maybe Leandro Gonzalez-Perez, who they missed in the last match. And you really saw that on um, crosses where they gave up all three of their goals to Orlando City on back post plays where LGP was missed greatly. Now let's go to the West Coast where the debatably other best player MLS is, and that's Ega Valeri. So do you think Portland, you know, could, be, could they be the best team in the West this year, and do you think their defense is consistent enough to put themselves in that position? I mean, uh, they're top four in terms of points per game out West, and like you said, Valeri's a, uh, an MVP candidate. He, he just set the record this weekend. He scored in eight straight games. Nobody had ever done that before, which tells you uh, just how good this guy is because he's doing it from midfield. But that said um, – Portland never look like they're in control of the game to me. They they never have the type of performance where you watch them for 90 minutes and you think to yourself, wow, they, they knew exactly what they wanted to do, and then they went out there and did it. Um, and that, look, it's, it's almost October, and if you're still asking that question at this point in the season, I, I don't think you ever really get the answer you're looking for. Um, and part of that does come down, as you mentioned, to their defense. They, they're not uh, an elite defensive team by any stretch of the imagination, and they they really can't go out there and win games by pitching a shutout. So I, I don't have a lot of timber stock, but there's nobody in West, in the West that is really impressive like that. Vancouver has had a good run, but that's because they played six or seven at home, you know. And Seattle are unbeaten in 13, but the last four are all draws. They've scored one goal from open play in the last month. And, so, and you go on down the list in the Western Conference and everybody has a huge caveat by their name. So it's, I mean, in answer to your question, I'm not convinced at all that Portland are a team that could be at the top of the conference, but nobody, is, nobody else out West is making a particularly compelling case for themselves either. So it's, it's tough to figure out how the last month is going to play out. Yep, and I think we're on the same boat. I don't see anyone really jumping out of the pack in the Western Conference, and uh, the East has looked so much stronger in the West this season. But, you know, for the Western Conference, looking into next year, who do you think? Is it Real Salt Lake? Is it San Jose in the next two to three years? Who can emerge in the Western Conference as that next dominant force? Uh, I mean, over the last six or eight weeks, RSL has played the best, uh, the best soccer in the conference and it, it I don't want to say it came out of nowhere it, it, it just it feels like it's a year too soon for them because so many of the guys who are giving them answers are are young I and mean, Justin Glad's just 20 Danilo Acosta's uh 19 Brooks Lennon still just 19 uh Rushnak is 22 Jefferson Savarino is, is 21 so they they definitely seem like the type to get next, but we're seeing something happen, you know, in terms of parity and stratification in MLS where like Sebastian Javinko, I mean, he makes $7 million a year for a reason. Uh, Joseph Martinez makes what he makes for a reason and has, you know, had the types of contracts that he's had, you know, with Torino and, and now with Atlanta for a reason. You need to get that type of top t- – I mean, not to mention David Villa. You need to get that type of top-end production in order to be a real contender in MLS. And so far, RSL has not gotten that out of Euromopsisian. Um, and, and I'm not sure if they're going to be able to get that out of him next year. So that's the worry for, for RSL. They, they do seem to have a lot of stuff in place. They do seem like a team that should be better next year. Um, but you've you got to get goals. You've got to have that one special guy who can just go out and win you a game. And so far, uh, that guy hasn't shown up for for RSL. So that that would be my concern. Yeah, I understand that. And probably RSL is my pick personally. But let's talk about MLS as a whole. And when it comes to the transfer window, um, guys like Miguel Almer and Joseph Martinez 
DPs from South America have really made their mark in MLS. Do you think MLS is considered a buying or selling league, league now that they've moved away from that kind of European star retirement home that everyone seems to uh, label MLS as? What do you think they're considered as a uh, trans? Uh, what kind of league are they considered as? Uh, I mean, I don't know what the public perception is going to say. And look, there should always be a place in this league for the likes of, of David Villa. Um, you know, he came when he was 33, I want to say. Thierry Henry came when he was 32 or 33. Beckham was 31. Those are great signings. You know, Robbie Keane was 31. That was a great signing. And there, there should always be room for great players like that um, in MLS. But, <laughs> I mean, I, I think Atlanta has helped turn a page for the league this year, just in, in terms of guys like Almiron and, and Assad and, and Vialba and, and – uh, and Joseph, and I, you know, we see it with Albert Rushnak in, in uh, for RSL and Saverino for RSL, and you know, maybe a couple of guys coming through Orlando City next transfer window. And I think that is the niche that MLS needs to occupy on the world stage. Uh, I, MLS should be league wide. The, the 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 culture should be where Ajax or or where Sporting Lisbon. You know, we are the team, the waypoint for, for top talents in the Americas to show their wares and then to move on to the biggest leagues and the biggest clubs in the world. And I, I think that's the future for MLS. And, and in, in, a few, uh, in, in a few markets already, it's, it's the present. Um, and as soon as owners start winning titles and making money by having that be their roster model, um, you're going to see, you know, 20 other teams sort of kept the hit and, and start trying to replicate that. Yeah. And um, so speaking of Atlanta, they kind of set the bar for expansion teams, unlike Minnesota where they hit rock bottom and LAFC looks like they're going to be a very successful franchise. I see Bob Bradley's signing was pretty big and they're like, they have a big um, fan base that can, that can thrive in. But what are your next four cities they don't necessarily have to be in order, but what four cities do you see as the most viable MLS expansion cities? Well, I'm going to push back first against the, the Minnesota as, as rock bottom uh, little thing you threw out there. I mean, obviously they haven't had a great season, but as far as expansion seasons go, uh, this one's not too bad. I mean, they, they're, uh, they're not at the bottom of the table in the West. They've got eight wins. Uh, they, they've discovered a couple of good young players to, to build around going forward, which is generally what you want to see from an expansion team. So I, I think it's unfair to, to label that rock bottom uh, for, for Minnesota United. Um, as for the next, uh, the next four teams in, I mean, I, I know about as much about it uh, as you probably do. Um, I don't have any inside information. Uh, I have family in San Antonio, so I wouldn't mind seeing San Antonio uh, get a look. I, I think that uh, St. Louis is kind of the spiritual home of U.S. soccer. So I, I think just in terms of, of sort of a romantic way to idealize the the history of this game, I would hope that St. Louis gets in. Um, I love San Diego, so I would like to see San Diego get in. But um, your guess is as good as mine. I, I I remain skeptical about the notion that the league is going to stop at 2018. I think as, as long as there are billionaires out there willing to, you know, shove over a quarter million or a quarter billion dollars to, uh, to get their own franchise, I think the league will, will continue to, uh, uh, to expand. So, uh, but these are all sort of long-term questions and I'm just playing hunches. Uh, like I said, no inside info on any of it. Gotcha, and going back to what you said about Minnesota, this is very true. They're not the worst team, but when they're compared to an Atlanta in the same expansion year, they do look a lot worse, especially from their fan base. And they're not at the bottom of the table. You know, you have Colorado down at the bottom of the West. And um, can you touch on Colorado, you know? Are they the most disappointing team this year in MLS? Is it New England? Who is the most disappointing team this year? Well, I, I thought Colorado would regress to the mean. I, I think this is about uh, this is about what I expected from them. 
New England are definitely disappointing, um, as are DC United and I think uh, Minnesota or sorry Montreal as well. But uh, hands down, the most disappointing is FC Dallas. This is a team that, I mean, they were considered a, a top favorite coming into this season. They they won the Supporter Shield last year, and you know they they won the U.S. Open Cup last year, and you know they they added a couple of supposedly big pieces this off season spent a little bit of money on a, on a forward to, you know, to be their DP goal scorer. And it, it's all fallen apart. It, somehow FC Dallas are in eighth place in the, uh, in the Western conference and are in real danger of missing out in the playoffs. It is the most stunning in season collapse I've ever seen from a good team in, in MLS. And Dallas aren't just a good team. They are the only team I've seen this year thoroughly outplay Toronto FC. It killed them 3-1 back in, in July. And uh, that should give you an idea of their ceiling. And to see them on, really on the verge of missing the playoffs, is I, I cannot wrap my head around it. Uh, so things have gone terribly wrong for, for that group. And uh, that makes them pretty easily the most disappointing team in the league. Yeah, I'm going to agree with that. I'm going to uh, touch on two things you said. Um, definitely FC Dallas. I think they've been very, very disappointing this year. And it's only going to get worse when Kellen Acosta most likely will go to Europe or play with a European club. Um, they'll, of course, get a nice, you know, a little bit boost financially from that. But speaking about another team that's also probably going to send their one of their stars to Europe, uh, Orlando City's most likely going to send their Kyle Laren to a European team. Do you have an idea of mind of a transfer fee for uh, I mean, Kyle Laren or, or Costa? Well, it, it, Josie Altidore was sold for uh, $10 million 10 years ago, um, but he was 18. So teams tend to pay a little bit more for younger players. Uh, so I, I don't think either Acosta or Laren are, are going to to be sold for that much. I would guess somewhere in the we'll say four to seven million dollar range um, for for each of them, uh, which is you know it's it's a good it's a good bit of money. It's, it's maybe not as much as uh, those two franchises wanted or, or were hoping for a year ago, but uh, the fact is MLS talent is still sort of underrated uh, on the international stage. Uh, and frankly, it's underpaid at home. So until those two things get sorted out, teams are going to have to accept the fact that they're going to uh, get a little less on uh, on the transfer market than they would have wanted. Yeah, I think that guys like Andrew Carlton or Chris Gosling, guys from the Atlanta United, uh, you know, training grounds when they hit the transfer market in a few years, they will set the bar for the next level of MLS transfer. But let's talk about um, what Alexi Law said on the Fox Sports broadcast on the, from both the U.S. and national team when he was talking about Tim Howard and Clinton Dempsey and how he expects more, and he was criticizing them. What was your initial reaction to that? I thought it was awesome. You know, I, I, I thought that the U.S. played a little bit soft and a little bit scared in those two big games, and uh, and, and the team deserved to get blasted, and we, you know, we're we're not <laughs> we we shouldn't be any different than any other soccer culture. Um, that doesn't mean we have to go crazy and fire the coach every time there's a bad result, or you know, stalk the players and uh, have paparazzi hiding in the stairwell type of thing. But these guys are professional athletes who have been handed a great or who have earned a great opportunity and uh, it hurts his fans and uh, people invested in, in their success to see them kind of blow it. Uh, so I was glad Alexi said what he said and uh, I understand and he understands that some of it was grandstanding, but Hey, I mean, sports is entertainment and uh, that's part of part of the whole deal. And I, I think the players understand that. I think Bruce arena understands that. And I think, the fans mostly understand that as well. Yep, I tend to agree with that as well. I do when I think Bruce's reign is over, which should be coming after Russia sometime as he was kind of 
a fill-in of sorts. Uh, you definitely need someone for the U.S. national team that's going to shake things up. I mean, if you have the same pairings in the lineup every time and you get underwhelming results, you're going to get... No, that's, I think that's actually the opposite. I think Bruce's big problem is that he has uh, messed with the lineups maybe a little bit too much. And now, granted, uh, there have been uh, some issues in terms of injuries that have made it tough to specifically on the back line to get the same pairings out there. But really under Jurgen Klinsmann uh, and now under Bruce, there's just been too much chopping and changing. So I'd like to see a little bit more consistency um, because I think from that platform of consistency, uh, you can really start to experiment and start to do uh, some stuff that doesn't just strengthen your own structure, but actually subverts what, your opposition is doing and we have not been able to do that the last uh three or four games out gotcha i, I see where you're coming from but in, in, you know in my opinion i do think guys that really aren't performing up to the level that we expect like a tim howard or a josie Altador, you know mm-hmm. uh, guys like kellen Acosta i mean i mean tim tim howard you know pitched shutouts in the uh in the gold cup, you know, if he, Tim Howard stoned Marco Urania on two breakaways uh, in the gold cup semifinals and Urania just happened to beat him in world cup qualifying. And, you know, Josie Altidore scored game winning goals in what, three straight gold cup games. So it's tough to, to say that, um, you know, Oh, we should just bench, you know, player X or player Y uh, for not performing when, if you look back one game previously, they had performed. So it's, I, I understand the frustration and it's, it's something similar to what Alexi did, but there needs to be some uh, for it as well. This is true. I mean, I'm kind of vincing as a non-patient U.S. Men's National Team uh, fan, you know, uh, coming mm-hmm. from that. But where can people uh, find you on social media? Or can they uh, follow you on Twitter? Sure, um, at Matt Doyle 76 on Twitter, and uh, you can find all of my columns, videos, and uh, podcasts at MLSsoccer.com. All right, well, I appreciate your time. It was a lot of fun. You got it. Take care. All right, you too. Goodbye. We hope you enjoyed that interview. And so let's talk some UPSL soccer and some NASL soccer, and we'll throw you a little USL and PSL in there. And all lower divisions, let's just say all lower divisions. So, the NASL, they next year will be moving down to D3 and losing their D2 status. And, you know, this would thought to be happened a little bit sooner since the NASL did not even meet the, D2, the D2 requirements ever in their history. They've never had the amount of teams, the financial resources, or a few other things that tendons the stadiums to meet D2 requirements. I mean, USL, to an extent, not all of their teams meet D2 status, but they do at least have enough teams that do meet D2 status, and they have enough teams, which is the main thing here. NASL will most likely have seven teams next year instead of 12, which is what you're supposed to have, and then eight this year. FC Edmonton is supposed to leave the NASL. Detroit City was a team that was at the sign table. They were going to join the NASL. Not anymore. Not after this lawsuit. Not after the move down to D3. Atlanta was supposed to get an NASL club next year. Uh, it looks like they might not be getting one. A, a few more cities. The NASL is just moving completely out. We see teams like Birmingham Hammers, who are a NPSL team. They move their NPSL club to the PDL. They connect their PDL team to a new USL club. Everything is moving away from the NASL. Last year, we had uh, four NPSL teams change the PDL. We had You had some teams in the south. We had two in the south, and I think one out west and one in the northeast. So you're seeing there's a lot of movement, a lot of people saying the NASL is not the right team for the future. The NISA is not getting enough owners, not getting enough support to launch when they wanted to launch, they have to launch a year later. They're not even going to have enough teams as they originally expected. Um, that's two D3 leagues the NASL will have, and I don't that that can't be sustained. They'll have to combine somehow, and I don't know if Miami FC wants to play D3. That's not something they want to do. They'll lose some stuff in the U.S. Open Cup. It's a it's a big boat and it's a big struggle, a big hurdle. 
uh, the New York Cosmos, a team. Yeah, they don't want to lose their pride. This really bad news in NSL in a nutshell. Bad news for the NPSL. The NPSL right now has a lot of failing clubs. A lot of clubs that are static being there. Their best clubs, their clubs. The reason NPSL has been successful is they've had clubs that acted like professional clubs. I'm sorry to overuse the word clubs, but oh well. Get over it. The teams that act like they're professionals. They're Chattanooga FCs, your Little Rock Rangers, your Detroit City FC, on and on. I can go on all day about naming these teams. They are all leaving Chattanooga. They'll have an MPSL team, not going to be their main focus. They're going to have like five people and their grandparents there. Um, they'll be playing D3. You'll have Detroit City. They don't know what they're doing yet, but they will have a, their full focus on MPSL. Little Rock Rangers, they'll be moving soon. Um, Michigan Bucks, they'll be moving soon. You have a lot of other teams. They will not be NPSL either this year or the year after that. Teams are leaving. The TDL is a U23 format that you have to pay $100,000 to join the league. This is amateur clubs we're speaking about. Guys that don't get paid. Guys that have to get off work. Guys that are going from college. That is a reason the PDO cannot be as successful as people want it to be. It's not bad, but it can't be where it needs to be. There needs to be a strong, there needs to be a strong U23 league. Yes, I still think the price is outrageous, but there needs to be a strong um, team where guys that are not in college can play. Also, that is why the UPSL will thrive. They're getting all the nice names, all the big-time names, all the hype teams, the great teams. They're coming out one join an elite um, uh, Division Four team league. You're having your little country United, someone that has great roots. They have an academy. They have all these teams leading up to their top-tier team. They're the UPSL, a good fan base. Savannah Clovers, same thing there. They're having Providence City FC, a team that looks like they're joining the UPSL soon. Merrimack Valley joining the UPSL soon. You already have all of your normal UPSL clubs, plus you just launched a Southeastern Conference. You're a lot cheaper than the PDL. You're a lot more successful than MPSL. The only thing holding them back is U.S. Open Cup automatic bids. I think the MPSL is going to lose them soon with the uh, the fall of the NASL. The PDL is U23 league. You need teams in the U.S. Open Cup that are not U23 teams. This is not going to hurt the UPSL right now as much as it could with the success of clubs like Christos FC and others that have um, strived that have come out of U.S. Open Cup qualifying. Uh, Low Country United and Boston Siege, two UPSL teams that get kicked out in pretty bad performances. They'll bounce back next year. I know Low Country United, the team that lost to Majestic 2-0 at Embry University, uh, a very, very good club. Low Country United, just to recap what they did, they on the Georgia Tour, where they played Savannah Clovers, they won 6-0. They came to the Georgia Revolution NPSL team, they won 3-2. They went to another NPSL team, it used to be NASL team, the Atlanta Silverbacks, 1-3-1 with a shot from half pitch. I was actually at that match. Uh, then they went to Emory University with 11 guys. The guys that couldn't get off work. This was not in their season. That's uh, Most of their players were in college. Again, not in their season. This is why U.S. Open Cup qualifying is a pain in the tail for um, the UPSL. This is a reason why they need to have automatic bid. But... They only had 11 men, and they lost 2-0. They did not play bad. They were a very, very good team. They would beat Majestic SC 9 out of 10 times. That just wasn't their match. Uh, let's talk some other news that's coming out semi-recently. And this isn't really news, but Nashville SC. Uh, I don't know if you've caught, if you guys have been keeping up with them. They're a new USO club. They'll be playing inside of the Nashville Sound Baseball Stadium for their first years until their stadium, their Soccer Pacific Stadium, is going to be complete. And hopefully they'll be playing MLS by then as they are an MLS bid. They did something very successful. I don't know if I'm supposed to announce this. Oh, well, I'm going to announce this. Nashville SC has sold more season tickets. I think actually double the amount of season tickets. FC Cincinnati has sold. In their first and FC Cincinnati's first two years, Nashville SC has done this in like two months. That is crazy. They've ran out of season ticket spots. You can't buy them anymore. Uh, when you go around Nashville, you see Nashville SC flags everywhere. They're having pep rallies all the time, kids camps. They are an 
up and coming franchise. Make sure you um, keep up with Nashville SC. And another club you want to keep up with is Asheville City SC. And we're going to have your interview right now with Ryan Kelly of Asheville City SC. So enjoy that. And we'll see you on the other side of the break. And we're joined by Ryan Kelly of Asheville City SC. How are things in uh, the Carolinas? Going well, going well. It's uh, it's been nice to kind of wind down from uh, a busy first season and kind of take a look at some of the big picture things we've got going on as we gear up for 2018. Yeah, and so for people that are not really familiar with the Asheville City uh, SC story, which is kind of hard if you follow us on Twitter, which we talk about y'all very very frequently um but how did the how did the you know project the franchise come to Milewood? you know how did Asheville City start um well the short story on that is uh I, I stumbled across Dennis Crowley's article that he wrote um I guess it was about a year and a half ago now um kind of detailing you know his project at Kingston Stockade and um my partners and I, we, you know, we we never really um, thought about soccer at this level. But the, the more we looked into his project and and thought about, you know, our own little hometown of Asheville, it, it just seemed like such a good fit that we needed to uh, needed to pursue this thing. And I don't know that we ever, you know, decided to go full throttle, but we, you know, we kind of took preliminary steps, and one thing led to another, and um, yeah, here here we are. That's kind of funny because, you know, a lot of uh, people I talk to, you know, their vision, their team started from the, uh, the, the same shadow of Stockade. And, but how did you guys decide that the NPSL was the right league for Asheville to play their inaugural season in? Um, a few things. Uh, we really liked the member-managed model of the NPSL. Um, we thought it, it suited us and it was a, it was a good starting point. Um, and uh, the other major factor was that uh, Asheville has a, a really vibrant adult soccer playing community. And uh, we didn't want to be, you know, restricted to a U23 structure like, you know, other leagues have. Um, so we thought the MPSL was just a good fit um, for, for what Asheville is and, and the strength that Asheville has. I think you're referring to the PDL when you talked about the U23 model. Um, so Asheville, they had a very successful season. They won their opener against Georgia Revolution, and um, they made it to the playoffs. They were knocked out by the Silverbacks, but when when Asheville came down to Atlanta to play the Silverbacks, their supporters um, had more people in attendance than the Silverback supporters, so that was pretty exciting. You know, how did the supporter group form, you know, what were your expectations? Or, you know, how did they? You know, what was reality versus your expectations coming into the season? Yeah, so you know, we knew that we wanted to have an independent supporters group. I think all the best supporters groups are independent. Um, you know, however, we've been plugged into the uh, the local soccer scene for for a while, and you know, we kind of knew um, you know who would kind of take that on and. You know, as soon as as soon as we found out who was kind of leading that charge, we were we were very confident that they would uh, that they would um, you know show out in, in good numbers and, and and bring that support all season long. And um, I, I think I think it's fair to say that they exceeded even our uh, our best expectations going in. And Asheville City sold out all of their regular season matches, um, and. Memorial Stadium, where you guys play your home matches, is a renovating. What is the um, capacity for this upcoming season? Um, well, we actually only sold out our final home game. Uh, we kind of built through the season and kind of um, finished strong, getting uh, 2,500 in there for our last regular season game against Nashville. Um, and th- those renovations are are long term. Um, that uh, those are in, in the hands of the local city government. So I think for next season, um, we'll have a the stadium will be, will be very similar, if not the exact same. Um, it'll, it's, it's kind of a multi-phase project. Obviously, we're, we want the uh, the playing surface replaced as soon as possible, and then 
you know, there's a few, you know, larger items like, you know, more seating possibly and press box and on-site locker rooms and concessions and you know, just, just the basic stadium infrastructure that um, a lot of other places have that, that we don't. I think that's one of the biggest challenges for us is that every time we have, every time we have a, a match, you know, we have to build and tear down a stadium uh, pretty much from scratch just to make it work. Um, so, you know, that, that's something that, you know, after these renovations, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll make, you know, we'll be able to focus on, on other areas with that, with that burden lifted. So, Asheville has kind of a, you know, they have a following, like you said, it's all the last home match, they have a pretty big supporters group. Um, what is the goal, what is the vision for the Asheville City in the future, like? What do you think about going D3 and, you know, maybe a few years down the road? Is that something that you guys are thinking about? Yeah, I, I think our immediate goals, you know, now that we've, um, you know, coming into this year, you know, we didn't have any experience at this level, so we weren't really sure what to expect. Uh, now that we have a, a season under our belt, I, I think we, uh, we're all pretty well calibrated on, you know, what is, what's necessary, what it takes to be successful at this level both on and off the field. So our immediate goal starting in 2018 is to, is to win the NCSL, and we're, we're taking aggressive steps um, to make that happen, both from, uh, you know, especially from a, like a recruiting standpoint um, and, uh, and everything that goes with that. You know, the, the Division Three thing is something that um, we're certainly interested in. It's something that we're monitoring. Uh, we know the pyramid is constantly changing. I think that's pretty evident even in the last few weeks as we saw the, you know, NESL maybe losing their D2 sanctioning and that kind of stuff. It seems like every year there's something that happens that reshuffles the pyramid. So uh, it's something we, we pay close attention to and um, certainly a move that we are we're interested in exploring if it, if it proves that it's something that Asheville wants. Um, it's not going to be something that we're going to, you know, push through as hard as we can if it's not something that, you know, our local market is going to embrace. So um, definitely something that we're, uh, we're exploring. And like you said, with the shuffling of the pyramid, you know, the NISA, which is the next year's D3 league, um, might not be the league of choice. The USL uh, league might come to a more viable option as, like you said, the NASL is kind of collapsing in a way. FC Edmonton's trying to pull away after the season, and some other teams might move around. So the NASL's entire structure might kind of collapse, and um, different D3 leagues might emerge. But so Asheville City coming into, they kind of had a rivalry of sorts with Chattanooga. So how did that rivalry get established, and what, what do you think the future will be for the uh, Chattanooga-Asheville rivalry? Yeah, we have a really good relationship with Chattanooga. Um, in fact, you know, seeing Chattanooga's success and, you know, everything that Asheville has in common with Chattanooga from a demographic standpoint, culturally, um, it really pushed us to, to get aggressive and, ma and, and make this move to, uh, to start Asheville City. So um, we reached out to them and formally consulted with them for um, an extended period of time and we thought it made a lot of sense given all the similarities between the two markets to learn from the best. I, I think most people tell you that, you know, nobody does it better than Chattanooga at this level. Um, and so when they approached us about, you know, starting a, a traveling trophy series, you know, we were, we were obviously thrilled. Um, we obviously weren't, uh, weren't too thrilled with the results in that first game. Um, we certainly weren't full strength, but um, I, I think, as far as that uh, that rivalry goes, I think I think next next season we kind of need to earn the right to call it a rivalry, um, and uh, you know tighten the gap between between the two clubs, and um, you know, we intend to do that next season and uh, beating them at home. Yeah, and that match was not very pretty after turning out to a nine nil uh, beating. Hopefully next should be a lot more competitive, and maybe you can even up the series, but. So, Chattanooga and Detroit and some other clubs have really been the amateur club that people go and seek advice from when they're starting up a new team. Has anyone or any team, you know, contacted you? And if so, 
what advice would you give to a um, new soccer club? Yeah, quite a few actually. I had a had a call this morning with uh, with a club that's getting started, and I think that's one of the been one of the more enjoyable aspects of uh, the entire project is, you know, we were the beneficiaries of a lot of great advice from Dennis at Stockade, from Chattanooga, and from from others. That you know, we're we're pretty honored to be in a position after our successful first season to to, to give back and um, to kind of share the the knowledge that we gained in the first year. You know, I, I think you know having Savannah up for a game, you know, that was that was that was a big part of that. And you know, as far as advice that we that we share, I I think it's really that it's, it's to go out of your way to learn from those who um, have experienced this. And my my experience, obviously, is that clubs are more than willing to share um, to share what they've known, what they've learned, and We've certainly benefited from that. I mean, I, I think there's no question that we've avoided mistakes based solely on the information that we've, we've gained from other people. So um, that's something I tell everyone is, you know, it shouldn't end with Asheville City. They should they should be contacting, you know, as many clubs as they can that they that employ a model that that they that they're looking to emulate. Gotcha. One more question before we wrap it up. Um, so there's some other um, Carolina teams in the area and around you and some South Carolina teams, is there any more friendlies or rivalries that you would look to um, partner with later down the road, like maybe a South Carolina Bantams or, you know, a Tobacco Road FC? Is there any other teams you'd like to uh, form a friendly against? Yeah, I, you know, I think we're always open to uh, to relationships like that. And especially, you know, across leagues, you know, this last year we, we started a, a series with uh, Tri-Cities, who's in the PDL. So, you know, that's certainly not an obstacle from our point of view. Um, I, I think the, the challenge for us is that we do play um, a lot of games in a very short window. So it's, it's kind of difficult to, to add too many of those events um, in our limited schedule. And obviously the PDL is on similar calendar. So, um Certainly something we'd be open to if we can make it work. Um, it's just kind of overcoming those logistical challenges with, you know, stadiums and conference schedules and that kind of thing. All right. Well, where can people get, um, get in contact with you on Twitter or Asheville City? How can they get involved with the uh, Blues and help support you all? Yeah, so our all of our social media is really simple. It's at Asheville City SC. Our website is AshevilleCitySC.com. Uh, we have uh, some email addresses on our website listed. If you'd like to contact us and ask questions, we we welcome that. Um, and our supporters group is at Southfoot Blues. So um, we really appreciate everybody's support, um, and we look forward to to what's to come in the future. All right. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Appreciate this. All right. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed that interview in this episode of Soccer Roundtable. Make sure you're following us at SOCC Roundtable on Twitter. We also have an Instagram that's the same thing. And make sure you're checking out all of our articles up on our website at SoccerRoundtable.net. If you want to get involved, if you want to write, if you want to sponsor our Georgia Cup, if you just want to chat, whatever you want to do, if you are a team, you're looking for contacts, for other teams, you want friendlies, you want to get involved with the Georgia Cup, you want to sponsor the Georgia Cup, anything you want to do, you can contact us on Twitter, on Instagram, or you can email us at soccerroundtable at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. We're going to end you out with the latest uh, Atlanta United rap recap by Conair, a good friend of ours, the show, and uh, have a nice day, guys. At the bench, ready, set, let's go. Got two goals, zero from Joe. Jeff got one, no wrestle cross came in. Just it hit, then we got Jeffy with it. Ooh, that's it, but looking back one time. Tito's shot went all up in the eye. He got a lot of top corner shot up. 12 on the season, getting his, let's win. Everybody looking at us, glancing his stripes. Wishing they was fans of the stripes. See what the crowd's at night. Back up again, yikes. Is Biggie all right? He got subbed out, and now it looks like he'll be out. At least three weeks, he be healing his hammy. Let's stand strong, tight, in like a family. Yo, cause up next we got Billy. Uh-huh. Let's make the goal count silly. Getting Jeffy with it.
Letting Tito in it. Missing Mickey in it. Getting Jeffy with it. How we do another win, but Mickey's hurt. Can we survive this? I believe we cannon. Hopes that we got Tito's cannon. Not to mention Chris McCannon. Left back, not back, Miggy set back, but five stripes fight right, never step back. back Wrestle long grats too, that's Kevin showing depth versus impact. Yeah, we saw Ken win, and we had a second. Straight game with a clean sheet bread. Defense looking solid, never defeated. So don't hang your head, let's paint the town red, black, gold, stripes hold. Cause one more dub in the playoffs locked in So let's get loud when the union walks in And hold our own from the left to walks in And score more goals on the turf with blank spins Uh, that's the end No more rhymes this time, but tune in The next rap recap at week's end Until then, highlights, junior win Yeah, that's the end No more rhymes this time, but tune in Next rap recap at week's end. Until then, highlights two new wins. Planning good pressure. Vijalba forces a takeaway. Gets control of the ball, top of the box, gets around defender. Vijalba takes a shot and scores! And he just said, I'm doing this by myself. What a cannon from Tito Vijalba. 12th goal of the year for the 23 year old Argentinian. Atlanta plays short of the corner. Now they'll put one in the mixer. It's headed back post. It's gone! And actually didn't head it, he sort of chested it in. Lorinowitz saw it in. That's all that matters. Alfaf looks at the watch, and there's the final whistle for Atlanta United. They set a new record for goals from an expansion team as they score their 62nd and 63rd. And who else but Jeff Lorinowitz getting the record breaker 2-0 over Montreal.